You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! another episode of the x-man podcast it's been a couple weeks since the 200th episode the rob trujillo episode which gotta say guys it uh it did far and above the expectations that i thought it would um i thought it would do well but it ended up being the biggest show i've ever done i mean 10 times bigger (laughs) than any other show uh, that the X-Man has had. So uh, thank you to Metallica who shared the interview and then a bunch of websites, Blabbermouth, Loudwire, picked up Metal Injection, picked up uh, some of the stuff that Rob was talking about, those those wonderful band life lessons. And yeah, so it did, it did about almost 300,000 downloads. It might be even more than that now, which is insane. So pretty pretty damn cool but yeah this episode i was supposed to get out last week and i was gonna do it yesterday and uh you know life um personal life sometimes gets in the way of the show and unfortunately kind of the busier and more successful i am with music the harder it is to to get these shows done you know it it was really easy during the pandemic when we were stuck at home and I could get people out over on the uh, on the old Zoom real quick, but now it's a little bit tougher, and unfortunately, that's always going to take uh, precedent precedence over over the podcast. But you know, I'm still here with you guys. I'm still working to make this stuff happen. I had two interviews cancel uh, a couple weeks ago, and but I was able to get, put this one together, which I'm I'm really excited about. But so much has happened um, essentially, we, essentially since I've done the last show. Um, we've lost, uh, Trevor Sternad of Black Dahlia murder, rest in peace. What a great guy. What a, a true ambassador for extreme metal. Uh, he loved it so much and he was just a great guy. And I, it, I mean, I think the loss on the community and just personally, I mean, you know, I got to do mayhem fest with him back in, in 20, 2009 and we were never super close, but we always, hung out we always were cool we always enjoyed each other's company and uh it's just i don't know it's it's just like losing you know dio but for death metal i mean he i think he he's that much of a of a figure and i i just send um 
you know, so much sorrow to, you know, his family and the band and man, uh, it's that, that, that was, that was a rough one. It's still, it's still rough to, to think about. And what else happened? We, I guess we're <laughs> through information found out that, uh, Roe v. Wade is probably going to be repealed, which is something, uh, you know, in America, if you don't, don't know, abortion essentially, uh, will be, you know, left up to the states. So you got about, they say maybe up to 20, 25 states where abortion will be severely limited or illegalized. And so that's a, you know, we're talking 50 years. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, I'm not going to go too much into this, into this stuff, but that's a, it's a really big deal. And I kind of expected it to happen um, after Trump got three, uh, court nominations and they were a lot of them seemed they were selected on the basis of this one issue so he came through for his voters and uh and now i think it's going to galvanize a whole uh generation of young people to go out and fight for their rights and i think it's actually probably going to turn a couple red states blue in the next 10 years because now you it's like now you've got something to fight for and so i think that's going to uh yeah i think it'll actually will backfire in in the, in the grand scheme but that's obviously huge news and, and something i know you know people close to me really care about and um and i agree with them so you know i'll talk about that probably more in depth in terms of my actual philosophy on that because um but within that time we also had two major mass shootings um one in buffalo that was uh, perpetrated by a white supremacist and then the uh Olvedi, Texas, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, uh, where gunmen went in and, and killed, you know, like 20 children and a couple teachers. And it's horrifying. Um, unfortunately, when that stuff happens, I, I basically, I can't watch the news. Like, it's too depressing. Um, even even like the the Ukraine stuff after a while, I'm just like, it just feels like it'll never end. There's nothing. There's nothing promising. Um, and I, you know, I posted something just about feeling like nothing is is going to change. I do feel like maybe there's an energy, and this is, I guess, this is what happens when um, when children are murdered. Energy around this this gun issue um, that hasn't happened since Sandy Hook, you know, and I mean. I mean, I think it's amazing. Like there was like the Las Vegas shooting, right? And that was the biggest uh, mass murder in U.S. history. I think fifty-eight people got got killed, and there was like almost no discussion around that. For some reason, when when adults die, we're just like, yeah, you know, people be dead. Um, and it's it's interesting to me that the abortion debate and the gun debate kind of are happening simultaneously because, in many ways, they're the original wedge issues there are two of the issues that people will be like one issue voters right like if you're a evangelical christian more than likely it's like you could never in good uh good conscience vote for someone who was not pro-life um there are you know and and in the inverse i remember you know one of my my friends that I grew up with, you know, who was older than me, was talking about the only reason he wanted to vote for Bill Clinton was because he was pro-choice, you know, the one issue voter. And 
guns are the same way. Like for a certain segment of the population, I don't know if it's 10% or 15% or whatever, 20% maybe even, where they're gun people and they legitimately think they need that gun to, I don't know, go to war with the government or <laughs> whatever. But that's like, that's it. If you're for, you know, for too much regulation, they don't want anything to do with you. So these are like the original culture war issues that people get galvanized on and they're I, I find them to be like strikingly oppositional and connected, right? Because they're all around this idea of like life and safety and freedom, right? Like what is, what is uh, how much latitude? And I, and I find uh, the abortion one is, is confounding to me because it's, it's probably the one that is encased in so much hypocrisy, right? Because the, um, it's like pro-life. But if you think about it, like like sometimes I think about these issues where they're so entrenched in the tribal mechanics that I think people don't often interrogate the reasons why they think they believe it. I think their tribe believes it, so they just go along with it without overly thinking it through. And it's funny, I was thinking about it, I was like, I was like if you think about it, being against abortion, because I think pro-life is, is kind of... Even like like pro when you say pro pro life pro choice, what you're really saying is the people that disagree with you are anti life, or the people that disagree with me are anti choice. Well, they hate choice. Oh, they just you know it's a way of um, indirectly sliming your op opposition. But they're kind of, I think pro choice is pro choice because you're basically going, hey, you know people have to make their own decisions, and but the the pro life thing really what you're saying is you're anti abortion. You know, you, you're pro unborn, you know, because if you were truly like your whole thing was like, I'm life, life, then you would probably be against guns, right? You'd probably be against the death penalty. You'd probably be super pro immigration, right? Because if there are dying people who are trying to get to America to survive, you're like, well, I need to help those people. You'd be super, you'd be pro uh, nationalized healthcare, free healthcare. You'd be pro uh, welfare programs, right? Like, so in many ways, like instinctively pro pro life would be that's like the most bleeding heart liberal position in a weird way even though the way we view it is 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 completely uh differentiated from that you know um and that really ties into the to the gun thing too which is like this idea of like acceptance of death right i think if you're a very pro gun person it's just going, hey, it's just the way it is. Nothing you can do. It is the price for the freedom is the danger and the death. And it's like, well, the likelihood you're going to be in a mass shooting is pretty low, which is true, which is true. But it's still this national stain. Um, and it's something that we have to contend with. Um, and I don't think guns are the only part of the problem, but it is it is it is part of it. And I think not admitting that is is partially um, being intellectually dishonest because you have a vested interest in that particular issue. So um, so I, I do think it gets overly simplified, unfortunately, in, in the media. And a lot of it takes people go to their, their corners and kind of repeat the same shit, right? People don't kill people. Guns, don't, you know, <laughs> guns don't kill people. People kill people or, you know, whatever. Uh, this is the only country. This is the only country in the in the Western world where this happens, or you know th things like that. So we we go into these reflexive modes, and I I'm bored to death by repetition. It's about what what else is changing. What's 
knew about this conversation, but it's uh, it's one we should be having. A lot of people say, well, a tragedy is, you shouldn't politicize it. I'm like, the problem is if you wait to talk about these things when the emotions are low, no one has the motivation really to do anything. Um, but at the same time, you don't wanna be too, you don't wanna uh, legislate just out of purely out of emotion because you become too reactive and you do things that are um, not necessarily measured, you know? So it's it's a tough one, but something we gotta deal with, you know? Um, like I said, I'm, do, I'm just, just kind of banging through these real quick. And then lastly, some big news, Bad Wolves, uh, our guitar player, Chris Kane, uh, left the band uh, a while back that we didn't really talk about it. He did a post on his Instagram, but the band did not address it. Um, he left on the last tour we did, and we've been playing as a four piece ever since. And then now we finally got to announce that Max Karen, who is the original guitar player for Bad Wolves before it was even called Bad Wolves, he's the one that I replaced because he quit the band. Uh, is rejoining the band, but it's important to know that he's worked on every Bad Wolves album. The first record, I'd say, you know, 70% of those, 80% of those songs, him and John wrote, and then we've always recorded with him. So even if I wrote something, he'd either play it or like, tra we'd, we'd, he was like our conduit, you know, he, a lot of the production and playing and his sound, like that guitar tone is Max's sound. So... It's just a huge deal. He's he's literally like a genius. He's like a musical genius, and he's a great, great guy. And so the fact that he's like finally in the band after all this time, and also will be there to truly help the compositions and the writing um, in a in a more involved way than he has on the last couple records, um, it's just super exciting. You know, um, it's uh, you know, it's just it's just really exciting. Especially you look at his talent level with DL in the band. I mean, we're really poised to make a fucking great, tremendous album. And uh, I'm just really excited, you know, so he's going to do this next tour and that we're, we're going out. I don't know if I guess I'm going to announce this. We're going, yeah, we're doing a second leg of our tour with Papa Roach and Hollywood and dead. But this time we're bringing uh falling in reverse. Well, I guess they're bringing us. And so it's like the uh, Papa Roach and them are head co-headlining. So that's going to be a big tour this summer. And I'm just really excited. You know, there's so much good momentum for Bad Wolves. We have a new music video coming out. We have this new like EP thing coming out, gonna uh, release some unreleased tracks, some B-sides, and there's some more tours that are gonna be happening and writing. And so it's very, very cool. And this past week, I just got done doing the wedding band show, the band, you know, the band I had with Rob and Kirk from Metallica. This time we had uh, Mark Asagueda from Death Angel on vocals and Mike Amster, who's a drummer, plays with Nebula and Mondo Generator. Great drummer, great guy. And we had a blast. We did the punk rock set up in Napa Valley after Metallica played Bottle Rock Festival. And yeah, it was a rockin', you know, we had I don't know, about 700 people in like this little mini theater. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And I'm a very, very, very lucky person uh, to have that opportunity and, and hopefully we'll do stuff in the future. So yeah, it's been crazy for me. And I get, like I said, the, the podcast has suffered, but I'm, I'm working on stuff. Uh, I'll be have like six weeks off the road coming up and I'll be able to kind of hammer some interviews down and, you know, I got some people lined up and it's going to be fun. All right. That was quite a mouthful, but that's what happens. I mean, you only do two shows in like 
a month and a half or whatever a month so again apologies for for the delays but that's that's just what goes down anyway we have a sponsor it's a band from texas they're called lockjaw and we're gonna play a track entitled breaking point you've taken my silence this weakness i told you to fear i'm turning my back and saying nothing but what i can hear just an arrogant mangled ego i'm at my breaking point i make the right choice and walk away are you okay have it that is lockjaw with their brand new single entitled breaking point i actually really 
enjoyed that. That was very catchy. It was very well produced. It was produced by a producer named, I love that, produced by a producer named Chris Collier, who's worked with Korn and Lynch Mob, Prong. And I think it sounds great. The vocals, it almost like sometimes I hear a little Corey Taylor. Sometimes I hear a little uh, Chad Gray slash Mudvayne stuff going on, but it was, it was very catchy, but had some had some balls to it. So these guys have been playing uh, in some form or another since 1998, and they describe in their bio as this kind of like a comeback. Um, and this so this song came out May 10th, and they have another new single coming out August 6th entitled uh, Silence the Fear. So be on the lookout for that. I'm sure they're going to be doing shows. And they've been doing like the thing where they're releasing singles kind of periodically as opposed to just doing albums, which I think is a a great way to go. I was looking at their their Spotify and people seem to be checking it out. So if you want to check out the band, I would go over to their link tree, which is Lockjaw Metal. That's L-O-C-K-J-A-W, and it's all one word. And just uh, you know, check out the single, check out their videos. They have a store. Tell them Doc Coyle sent you. And if you'd like to sponsor the show, please shoot me an email at the X-Man Podcast at gmail.com. Remember that is E-X. Or, or just hop in the DMs on social media and I'll get back at you and just send you to the email. Anyway, there might be a little bit of wait because you know it's been you know, a little sparse on episodes. I had kind of a backlog a little bit on kind of setting up some sponsorships, getting back to people. My apologies, but we're going to get caught up. So thank you. Thank you for the for the sponsorship, Lockjaw. You guys are awesome. And without further ado, I'm going to give a quick little intro to our guest, uh, Mr. Stephen Brodsky from Caven and Mutoid Man, now playing with Quicksand. I mean, one of my musical heroes, someone I've been wanting to get on this show since the day. I started it, and uh, this talk was incredible. Uh, he's just one of the nicest and most humble people. And if I was him, I would not be humble. All right, I'd be a dick if I was that talented. Uh, <laughs> but he is the literal opposite, and uh, I couldn't have asked for more from a conversation. And I just really uh, appreciate his time and his energy, and and just his his body of work which is uh, about as impressive as you can get so i'm gonna stop running my mouth let's get to this conversation with the legendary mr steven brodsky well either way man listen i i appreciate this so much uh when i first started this show five and a half years ago you were on my master list of the people I wanted to get for this for this show because uh, I mean I don't know if you know the concept of the show but um, you know I started it after I, I left my old band God forbid and was in this weird space of figuring out what the hell I was gonna do with my life so I was like oh I thought that would be fertile ground for a podcast and talk to people about these crazy adventures we go on uh, between starting bands and leaving bands or having bands go dormant and all this stuff. And I think you've had one of the most interesting careers as far as all the places you've, you've gone. And, and I've, you know, even though I think I, God forbid, I think we did a show at Coney Island high with uh cave in back in like, I don't know, 99 or something or 2000 or something, something like that. But other, that sounds about right. Yeah. You know, but other, but other than that, I don't, I don't think we ever really got a chance to, to, to play together outside of some, some, some weird stuff, but I always kind of like, maybe I've met you a couple of times, but I always, always like 
intimidated to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, no, I've all, dude, I'm I'm such a huge fan. I you know, and I, so I've always kind of put you in this this pedestal where like I could see some super big rock star dude, and I have like no problem saying hi. But for you, I was like, man, that's, that's Steve Brodsky, man. I can't. I gotta leave him alone, man. <laughs> uh, well, we're gonna set that pedestal on fire this afternoon. Yes, yes. <laughs> Down with the pedestal. But uh, but thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for wanting to do it. And yeah, I uh, I was just listening to the episode you did with Rob Trujillo. Very right cool. Yeah. yeah. Speaking cool. of interesting musical trajectories, that guy has quite a story. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's uh, you know. I, I always try and f it's it's so odd, you know, especially coming from the world we come from, which I, I think about that Northeast hardcore independent music scene, whatever you want to call it, was so um, distinct, right? Like in terms of like creatively what was going on, the kind of amalgamation of, okay, you'd have this emo band and this grindcore band and this straight edge band and this tough, and it was like this, just that, that, that kind of... Uh, place is, su is such um just the whole environment was so humble the idea that you could like move up and do different things is kind of was wild to me at the time so having him on there and you know now he's at the top of the world and so it's pretty cool it's very inspirational you know oh absolutely and uh yeah regional sort of aspects of how all this stuff works is very interesting to me as well and you know there's something about being a new englander and suffering through these fucking hellish winters that um well no wonder some of the sickest heaviest coolest fucking hardcore at least from my generation has come out from this area it makes sense you know are you still out there i live in massachusetts now yeah, yeah. i did 11 years in new york and you know hit the 10 year mark i was like okay i'm gonna i'm officially a new yorker now time to fucking leave <laughs> <laughs> but i got my own place so um you know after you know many years in my adult life being squeezed into tiny spaces apartments and such i was like let's try this homeowner thing and see how that goes and you know so far it's the the one of the better aspects is not having my guitar collection crammed into a the, the only closet in the whole apartment how many guitars are we talking about Oh, not that many. <laughs> About as many as a New York uh, apartment closet will hold. Yeah, no, um, I, I know a little bit about that. Luckily, I can kind of uh, use the band's uh, storage space and 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 actually, I like I like lend guitars to friends just so I have like one less guitar. <laughs> hey, you you can hold perfect. on to that for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you give this thing some love. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if you don't mind, I, I kind of like, like to talk a little bit about uh, back in the day, because I, I really go back to, uh, I guess it's technically it's not an album, um, which I, I always forget that Beyond, Beyond Hypothermia was, I guess, a compilation of a bunch of uh, seven inches and, and demos and, and, and things like that. But at the time, I just kind of perceived it as the first Cave-In release. And, um, you know, at, at that time, discovering all the music that was going on it, everything was word of mouth every everything had this uh air of mystique to it because sometimes you wouldn't see a band maybe for for a while and, and so all you'd know about them is like the picture of the band and like the, the fold out you'd like it was just there was this very like distant distant thing but even now listening to that it felt at least those first few few songs 
there was a kind of defined style already. It was it was recorded well, um, but that was at the time when you weren't um, singing, right? You were just playing guitar. At that time, I was mostly playing guitar, and um, you know, in the good cop bad cop vocal yeah. scenario, I was playing the good cop. <laughs> but yeah, but that was so being kind of a student of the genre and, and especially as, as these kind of tags evolve through the years on, on what they mean, but this kind of key term metalcore, right? And what, what that has come to mean in, in different eras, and especially now that it's probably like maybe the biggest form of metal right now is quote unquote metalcore. But a lot of these, these uh, signature moves and, and styles, I feel like Caven was one of the bands that really, broke ground and was combining some of the things that many bands would follow in the intervening years. Uh, where did the idea to kind of combine that stuff and have it be so distinct and with the metal and the melody and the breakdowns and, and this kind of emo parts, I mean, was that just something that was naturally happened or was there some broad uh, big picture thought process behind that? Well, there's certainly some history involved in all the members of Caven at that time. Um, we started the band super young. I mean, we were all 15, 16 years old in 1995. But prior to that, um, all the members of Caven had been in other bands and kind of done other musical things together. So I was singing predominantly melodically in bands before Caven. And, you know, when it t came time to sort of form something that made us want to unite more deeply and more closely with the world of hardcore punk that was happening around us, um, it was mainly myself and our original vocalist, Jay Frechette, who we, we essentially founded the band and came up with sort of the general concept for what we wanted to be and how we wanted to be perceived and sort of the, you know, overall musical direction. And so, I mean, he had such a fucking sick, insane, hardcore screaming voice that I was like, well, you've got that covered. I'll do the, you know, the pretty stuff on the side. I'll kind of fill that in where it might need to happen. And it, it just became something that um, sort of, gave the band its own uniqueness and that sort of duality of vocals. I mean, it started as far back as the formation of the band and, you know, it continues to be a thing. Yeah. I mean, did you, you know, even before he left and I guess um, leading in, into uh, to your heart stops, I mean, did you know you had a cool scream or could kind of play that role as well? Is there something you discovered when you, you became the vocalist? Oh, I sort of fell into that role. Um, I mean, it was partially just a uh, circumstance. Um, the band had studio time to record what was going to be the Until Your Heart Stops record. And we had a major lineup change where our second lone vocalist, Dave Scrod, um, was no longer in the band. Um, and this was following a tour that we did. And you know, we had a great run together, but I think we just didn't see the potential longevity with that particular lineup. And really, when the sort of the long lasting sort of lineup of Caven 
came together, at least in our minds. Because up to that point, it felt like a revolving door, you know, different bass players, different vocalists. It was a wild time. But once Caleb joined the band, we had this really sort of settled feeling that we kind of had hit upon something. And uh, so he was fresh to the band. And, um, you know, he's also just one of the mightiest forces and, you know, heavy vocals ever. But at the time, he was super new and he was just kind of figuring his way out, you know, in terms of like figuring things out how to acclimate as a bass player to Caven because he was coming from a band called Strike Three as the lone vocalist. And here we are throwing him, you know, some fucking riff soup to learn. Like, dude, you know, we got weeks to learn this shit before we got to record it. And, you know, he's literally like locking himself in a closet overnight to like, you know, really just absorb all the material that we were working on at the time. And uh, I was just like, I, I was basically at a point where I think we were all at a point where we were like, I don't know if we can entertain the idea of trying to get a fifth member in the band. It just didn't seem logical. And, you know, those guys were like, listen, man, just take the mic stand, lower it a little bit, do your fucking best James Hetfield stance and just lay into it. And it was really the confidence of the other Caven guys that kind of lifted me into at least giving it a shot. And uh, that's how it started. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, it's that era is fascinating for, for so many reasons, uh, primarily because until your heart stops, I consider, you know, an all time classic and a, a, in many ways beyond hypothermia was there was a lot of hype around there but it felt kind of uh consistent with a lot of uh very cool things happening in the in the scene and then until your heart stops soared over everything in my in, in my opinion because creatively it was just doing things you guys were going places no one else was going it was this it invoked this idea that oh you think there are rules no no there are no rules you can we're going to do all, you know, all from a stylistic standpoint, there's so many interesting vibes, but there's also, you know, there's some very technical playing on there. There's some very interesting guitar interplay. Um, it just, it to me, it, it, it broke the mold. And I considered it the best metalcore album ever until Killswitch Engage, uh, until uh, Live or Just Breathing. So it's, it's like 1A, 1B. But there was clearly something about that record that, uh, it it spread like wildfire in terms of uh, fandom anticipation. But I remember there was kind of this gap between the record coming out and everyone I knew falling in love with it, and then you guys actually playing those songs. So there was this crazy show at Middlesex County College in Jersey, and it was Hatebreed who had like canceled eight million times, so they hadn't played in forever. So that was nuts. Shy Halud, which was like one of the craziest shows I've ever seen in my life, and then and then you guys. Um, and I saw, and I got to see the band a, f- a few times there. I think there was a benefit at the Kill Time in in Philly, and like Converge played, and that show was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I do but, remember that show at Middlesex College. That was the first time I ever saw somebody full on moshing with a like a a mouthpiece and a and, and all this headgear, <laughs> like real pro, brutal, violent moshing. Dude, that show was. Uh, I mean, it's to this day probably one of the craziest shows I've I've ever been been to. But I but I remember there was this palpable anticipation because the record had been out for a while, and 
you know, you just live with the record in your head and then now you get to kind of um, interact. But I, I kind of noticed this thing, you know, and in, in many ways, I guess it was, um, you know, uh, kind of telling about what was to come, which which was like, you guys had all these like mosh parts, right? And like this thing that connected, especially playing with a band like Hatebreed, for, for example. But there seemed to be a little distance between, I think, culturally, I think maybe the way that you guys saw yourselves and the the fans of the music, the people that were kind of into it. And then this, this time where you're playing those songs, but you kind of start doing those spacey interludes and kind of like you were like operating on your own frequency to some degree. And, and it was interesting seeing that kind of last gasp of that because probably the next time I saw the band, even though your last record was until your heart stops, all of a sudden you were playing some of this stuff from like creative eclipses and, 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 and stuff like that. And you completely started to uh, change the band. So what was going on internally where all of a sudden you, you made this really seminal Im- impactful metalcore record. And all of a sudden there was something you, that you wanted some kind of distance from that creatively. Well, like I said, um, the lineup change where we downsized from a five piece to a four piece and with Caleb joining the band, there was this feeling of like, wow, Caven could be anything at this point. It was like doing a hard reset in a really cool way. And we just felt brave. We felt creative. We felt kind of invincible and um, ready to challenge people. And uh, one pivotal moment in the I guess transformation of all things musical and just vibe was um, going on tour with Neurosis. We did uh, shows opening for Neurosis with Candiria. There was maybe one other band on the bill for all of those shows, but it was it was a short run. It was like five or six shows along the East Coast, and um, you know we're barely drinking age at that point, and um, here are these like seasoned West Coast hardcore punk veterans. I mean, we're playing shows with like men, you know, and like there's a guy named Rody. I, I never actually learned his real name. They just called him Rody, but he was this dude, um, you know, just in like army fatigues and never wearing a shirt and just had the sickest utility belt and was just constantly like working and, um, you know, watching Steve Von Till take shots of whiskey just to warm up his voice. I mean, this was all like blowing our minds coming from our little world of Merrimack Valley hardcore. And, um, you know, what they were doing musically at that time with the Grace, Times of Grace album, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was that fresh and new and exciting. They had just transitioned from making records with Billy Anderson to all of a sudden working with Steve Albini, which was really cool. So there was this connection of like all the stuff that I loved about alternative and grunge, which Albini had a heavy hand in with, you know, the Breeders, Nirvana, the Pixies, um, Jesus Lizard. And all of a sudden there's Neurosis as part of that. And we were just like, wow, all ears for that. I remember hearing an advanced copy of that record uh, from Aaron Turner at the old Hydrahead office in Boston. And um, it was just a really exciting time. And so what they were doing sort of spoke to us musically in the sense that 
we were looking for ways to still retain some kind of heaviness and epicness and adventurousness in the realm of like metal and hard hitting stuff, but trying to find a new way of um, expressing that or, or smashing different things together and creating a new concoction to pour into people's ears, you know, and they were doing it. And just to be around that and to see it happening was huge, um, major, major influence on us and discovering, um, live at Pompeii by Pink Floyd, which is, you know, arguably one of the best live documents of a band, also one of the best documents of a band in a like pivotal transformation you know um and i think the neurosis guys had like an audio copy of that that they were listening to in their van and we were just like that's so fucking cool you know i mean again this is like late 90s so to go through the effort to like get a good copy of that record and to be able to take it around with you and listen to it um was huge so all these things were sort of happening as the band was shifting from until your heart stops and moving into the direction of Jupiter. I mean, was there fear about turning off the fan base you did have? Yes. Yeah. There was some fear of that for sure, but we were young and we kind of got off on that fear again, yeah. like having this new lineup with Caleb in the band, we just felt like we could pull anything off and, uh, you know, as long as it was loud and, you know, look, JR is like one of the hardest hitting drummers out there, you know, and he's been that way for a long time. So it's not like we can turn our amps down. He's it's I mean, for years, it was just constantly encouraging JR to play harder, harder, hit harder. <laughs> and so we created this monster in that sense. And so even as the sound of the band was shifting away from like a very sort of obvious metallic tinged thing or like riff based stuff or things that were sort of traditionally more metal. Um, it's not like we were turning our amps down. In fact, you know, at times it even felt louder in a, yeah. in a weird way. Well, no, I, listen, I, I was there for every move and the, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by just as like a student, of music right and bands that do those those sharp turn albums where they're this one way and then they kind of pull a and an about face um with you guys if you were paying attention it, it was slower than if if you just had until your heart stops and picked up jupiter then it probably feels that way but if you were like me where we were watching you guys live all the time i felt like i could see um the metamorphosis kind of in real time and you guys kind of slowly moving to where you wanted wanted to be but i mean from my perspective the talent level and the kind of mu musical proficiency was so high that's what made it work is that so the problem is a lot of bands will oh we're a metal band and we're gonna go rock but they ain't just that they're not that good at rock <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's not their forte even though maybe they feel like they want to stretch their legs but i think the big reason why by the time Jupiter really came out and got its footing, you guys were probably bigger or a lot bigger than you were when the band was was heavier. I don't really know the numbers or or you know things like that, but that's just my perception of it. Uh, that it was a metamorphosis that was that was very successful, 
uh, because you did both at an extremely high level, which I think is just, that's just a tough thing to pull off in general. Cool. Well, thanks. And, you know, I mean, certainly looking back, I can see that we, we were just young and sort of living in a bubble. And as far as being very career minded about music, um, we weren't doing things like thinking about our brand or, you know, all that stuff that kind of people talk about today. And it's not that it's bad. It's just that we were not really in that headspace. We lived far more sort of in our own worlds, in our own minds, um, both as individuals and as a unit. And so that might explain some of the erratic nature of our band. But like you said, if you were coming to the shows regularly, you were going to see that certain things were sneaking their way into the trajectory as opposed to just appearing out of nowhere. And uh, I mean, that's also a difference of just how things worked back then versus now, like, you know, pre-internet and post-internet where like pre-internet, you want to see a band evolve, you got to be there with them, like in the room, in the moment. And, um, you know, today there's like, you can do little clips of a little teaser to you know, here's something we're trying out and you can gauge interest based on that. And um, it can be done remotely in such, you know, vast amount of ways that just wasn't really at our disposal back then. So just the development of artists, I think, has changed in some ways as a result. Um, I think the core elements of what makes great art you know, as long as we are predominantly human beings, <laughs> um, is gonna it's gonna stay the same. But um, it's it's interesting, you know, doing this for you know thirty years. Um, some things do change. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess my, my perception of things is is when I think about you, and, and I'm sure this I, this could apply to the band um, for, as an extension, but. You know, my perception of you is is as a true artist, like someone who was able to uh, not let the kind of outside noise kind of uh, filter that, you know, and that's something I'm all in some ways I'm kind of jealous of uh, because I felt like with God forbid, you know, we within a few records, we were doing Ozfest and we're touring with Slayer and all of a sudden the business thing has this way of kind of seeping into the creative. Um, how were you able to not let that noise kind of filter in where it just felt, like I said, to me, what the, the biggest inspiration or the thing I loved about uh, the band and, and what you do is just, it just seemed like, like this distilled creativity. Like you were just going wherever you felt. So it always, every time I would see the band live or hear a new record, I, it would goes, Oh man, there's they're they're going places I didn't even think of. And and that's that that's the beauty. There's some some amount of creative freedom and you're tapping into something that we all wish we could, right? We're trying to like create this pathway of being kind of unhindered by whatever bullshit or outside anything or 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 preconceived notions or whatever. You know, what what, what kind of keeps you at that uh kind of kind of so you you know your true north. Uh, that's a great question, and I mean I gotta throw it back to my band. Really, it's a group effort. You know, um, at the sort of early stages of Caven, I was 
definitely more of a, um, I guess, a, I was playing more of an active role in guiding where things would go. Yeah. And uh, I was just lucky to have the trust of those guys. And, you know, we've also, I mean, myself, Adam and JR, we grew up in the same town. We've known each, we've known each other since junior high. Um, so there's a long history there. And um, I think that adds to the level of, I guess, um, risk that we're willing to take. Um, because, you know, no matter what, if something crashes and burns, we still have our friendship. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. So, um, but that being said, it hasn't always been the case where, um, you know, I've been able to wear that aluminum foil hat and avoid all the the radio waves of noise coming in and affecting my brains, you know? Um, I mean, it was a real trip when Caven signed to a major label and our world just like flipped upside down and, you know, we were just this punk band, hardcore band, sort of very rooted. And like I said earlier, we didn't have these sort of long-term plans or ideas of what our band should be. I mean, we just, in a lot of ways, we didn't know how to think that way. And and when we signed to a major, it was like all of a sudden we had to start trying to think that way. And, you know, I think it did affect our creativity um, and it affected our working relationship and our ability to work together. And there's just all this other stuff to think about. And, you know, a lot to stuff, a lot of new stuff to think about at once. And, um, it was, it was a weird time. You know, I can't say that it was the band's best creative period, which is crazy because, you know, in some ways we had the opportunity to establish a, a much greater reach, but that was also part of the problem. What gets in your head is you start to, or at least I did, um, I started to think about writing to an audience that wasn't there. Like literally I couldn't see it, but I just felt like it was out there. Mm. And this was a product of all this new shit that was going on in our band and these new relationships that we were suddenly forming and at, at RCA and new management, new publicist, new booking agent, like the whole, the whole thing just got like wiped clean and we were bringing in all these new people. Not to say that like, we didn't forge some great relationships out of that and have some amazing experiences, but it was just a lot of, a lot of stuff happening at once for sure. Well, I mean, I personally really like Antennae. I think it's a very cool album and I think it's, you know, I, I, you can definitely hear this kind of, um, maybe things got a bit more concise in the songwriting and a little more to the point, um, which, you know, I, I, I can imagine, I don't, and I don't know what those conversations were like with maybe with management or A&R people of like, I don't know if they had that, listen, guys, we need a hit. I don't know if that, if that conversation happened. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, like line for line, it was, you know, we need an inner Sandman. Where, write, <laughs> write us a black hole sun. Where's the fucking chorus? Yeah. Straight up, yeah. you know? Um, and, and this was a blunt, like a bluntness that uh, it was definitely new for us in the sense that working with Hydrahead, it was, you know, that was a label that, um, you know, small operation, um, you know, fans of just all types of 
cult music and celebrating shit that's way off the radar and um, just willing and able and ready to accept whatever we delivered them. And they were on board to release it. And that was like very, very much not the case um, moving to a major label. Not to say that they were super heavy handed. It wasn't like Thor's hammer coming down on on our skulls. But, um, you know, I think also when you take a large sum of money to work on art, it's nothing's ever for free. And there's just this thing, this feeling of something that's hanging over you that uh, I don't know. It's like a mosquito kind of buzzing well, around it's, your it's ear. Just, it's pressure. It's just pressure. It is. You know, it's yeah, I. I I absolutely agree with that, but there's also this element of, right? I think the dream, especially when we're starting out, and I and I imagine we probably started, you know, playing shows and making records at very similar age as teenagers, um, and all of a sudden, people do like what you do, and there is some income, and you, your, the dream is to be able to just do music and just focus on that, but the problem is once that you achieve that. Now you're dependent on the fact that enough people like or consume your music, whether that's selling tickets or records or t-shirts, whatever, so that you can keep doing it. So if you have a misstep that all of a sudden the people are not showing up at the shows, they're not buying the records. Now your dream of just being able to do that perhaps might go away and then you're, you know, waiting tables or, or what have you. And that there's a, at least for me, there's a, there was always that great anxiety and especially doing this show and talking to so many people that have had the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of a, a music career, especially doing um, original music and, you know, independent music is, you know, eventually, you know, you're coming home from tour and no one has any money and you're trying to figure out like that. Those are some real like come to Jesus moments, you know, and, and that's like, that question or or the battle with the creative in terms of kind of shooting for the result as opposed to just being there for the the process and just the the environment you know what i mean oh 100 percent. and just to go back to a point you made earlier um as far as doing this thing and hoping to sort of you know create some sustenance out of it the people that are working for you are also hoping the same thing yeah. You know, like, you know, we're now part of their dream in a way. And well, 15% you know, of nothing is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that hasn't changed. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly made a weird time for the band creatively. And I think the silver lining is once we got through that process and we realized we didn't really belong in that situation and we were let go from the label and we were very fortunate to have been embraced once again by the community of hardcore and punk. It really was like a recalibration to what the band was supposed to be doing in a creative way. And I think that's where you get a record like perfect pitch black, which is where the duality of those vocals that you know we established on the very first demo um were really coming to play in full effect again i mean you heard a little bit of it on big riff and then there's a song that we recorded called inflatable dream which was 
um, written and recorded around the same time as the Jupiter record. And in hindsight, it's real stupid that we didn't put it on the record. And Nate Newton, our new bass player, will be the first to point that out to you. <laughs> he says it's his favorite Caven song. And, um, you know, it's got one of the meanest Caleb vocals on it out of any Caven record or recording. What, 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 what is that release song? Because you guys are, it's so fascinating because I'm like going through the Spotify and I was always trying to pick, you know, with, I got the Creative Eclipses EP. I had Tides of Tomorrow, which is probably one of the most underrated uh, Cave-In releases. Such a good EP. Thanks. Um, and but there's always little things. I'm like, what? When did I miss this? And there's you guys. That, it seemed like you never stopped writing and recording. And and maybe it was like you, they were coming out in seven inches. I don't know how I was missing all this stuff. But um, where did that song come out on? Well, so it remained unreleased for a number of years. And then in, a, I think it was like 2009 or 2010, we, we, we did a record called Anomalies, which was basically a collection of odds and ends and stragglers and, you know, songs left behind. And um, it's, it's a really cool collection. It actually sort of flows together nicely. It's like, it's like Caven's incesticide. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Oh, no. I So, okay, so I, I was just looking at that, and it's two of my favorite covers, which is I Love I Ja, which was on the, the uh, Bad Brains cover album that i think central media put out and you guys by far had the best cover on there because oh, but i love what you guys did because you always made the cover sound like a caven song you didn't just you know you know just do a copy and then nativity in black which you know i fell i almost fell in love with that song because of you guys even though that's kind of sacrilege you know don't tell nobody except for people listen to this <laughs> <laughs> um you know, and I'll actually I'll sing that in on karaoke sometimes. Really fun song to sing. Um, and you guys killed that. But then I remember I saw you guys with Converge at uh, CB's, and you you did one of the best covers I ever heard. And I don't think you recorded it where you did "Dazed and Confused" by oh, Zeppelin. Yeah, we, by Zeppelin, yeah, there is a recorded version of that out there. Um, 
you know, you never know with covers. It's, it can go one way or the other. You know, you might have to pay out of the ass just to let people hear it. Sometimes it's better just to secretly put it out there and let the hardcore fans find it. But um, yeah, that was our thing. You know, we would, you know, be doing these shows right around the transition of, um, you know, until your heart stops into Jupiter. And it was like, you know, you play a couple new songs and people would, you know, some people would be into it. Some some people would be like, all right, come on, where's fucking Moral Eclipse guys? And then, you know, there's a break and you're like, all right, everybody, thanks for checking out all this new shit. Now we're going to play an old one. And people are like, yeah. And then next thing you know, we're playing Dazed and Confused. <laughs> <laughs> dude, it's, uh, dude, that's the kind of weird thing about CBs is that despite it on its surface being a relative shithole, the sound there was amazing for some reason. I don't know what, what unbelievable. They, I don't I don't know why, but I remember it being like just like you said, that's that wall of of sound. And you guys are, you know, still to this day, I I I think Haven's one of the best live bands ever, just in terms of sonics. Um I mean, obviously having a, a great deal of, of chemistry as a band and you know, different era where Obviously, everything was just more organic, and it was about those 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 individuals. But man, just what you got, especially with guitar tones. I mean, you're you're probably one of the most influential people on me in terms of guitar effects and kind of delays and spatial effects. And I I kind of want to get you know I don't even know what the question is, but I basically I want you to divulge your secrets here on the show so I can I can learn to to steal. I want to to get the essence of the cave and guitar effects all right tell me the secrets all right i know you don't you don't have to say anything but also tell me but you don't have to <laughs> <laughs> no that's super cool man um yeah i was thinking about this earlier just uh you know if you look at photos of bands sort of like from our world in like the early 90s um it's rare that you see uh a, a pedal board on stage, let alone even like one or two pedals. Um, you know, it's usually like straight to the amp or a tuner or maybe a wah pedal or something or an overdrive or a boost or a channel switcher. Um, so, you know, not that Caven brought effects to hardcore, but um, I will I say mean, that- I like, mean, I don't know, Who's, who, who else? <laughs> who, I mean, I'm trying to think like, in, in terms of the soundscape uh, energy, I remember it was another band I think it's South Carolina. Remember Code Seven? Yeah, the, I did. They were, but but the party owners was they would do a lot of cool stuff with effects. But I was like, but did they were they influenced by you guys? I'm not sure. We played shows together, or maybe a show. Um, as far as what we were doing, we were pulling from influences in the realm of like alternative rock. Yeah. Shoegaze. Well, it's called shoegaze because you're sitting down looking at your pedal board and all the <laughs> guitar effects. Yeah. You know, whether it's yeah, there's some know. of that. I mean, My Bloody Valentine. Um, you know, the Cure. The Cure has a lot of cool guitar. Yeah. Does so with, with effects, and a lot of people don't realize that. Well, I'm sure you do, but maybe people listening. I feel like the Edge from you too, and his influence on kind of the whole indie scene was was a big deal and a lot you know they're so big it's almost like people don't realize how innovative he was in terms of soundscapes with guitar huge stuff. huge absolutely and u2 was the first band i ever saw perform live dude so there you go i still haven't seen u2 and it's like definitely bucket lists thing 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it was uh, it was in 1992, and I think it was the Zoo TV tour. And actually, hold on, that's a lie because they were on tour with Primus, and so the first live band that I ever actually saw was in fact Primus because I remember walking into like a partially filled stadium or yeah, it was Foxport <laughs> Stadium, which is that's where the a show weird. Was. Band mix. <laughs> right? Primus opening for you too. I mean, that explains me in a nutshell. <laughs> Dude, now I was thinking about someone else. Um damn, I just had a brain fart of someone else that was that was really um influential with, with guitar effects. Maybe it'll come back around. But um but but so one thing I kind of this is like super, I guess on my end feels kind of dumb. Is like, and by the way, this is this is just for the guitar nerds. If you're not a guitar nerd, you want to fast forward. But I always <laughs> would run delays through my effects loop, you know. But then I kind of realized, like literally, like maybe a year ago, you know, is that you can run delays in front of the amp and then in the effects, and you get different sounds. You can blend those, and you get a totally different type of. And I, uh, you know, way it goes. And I kind of realized after the fact, that's probably stuff you guys were doing, but that's just me guessing. Yeah, it's fun to experiment with the chain placement of effects. And uh, I know it's unorthodox and I don't know how it started, but um, I actually put most of my effects before my gain because I don't want to hear just the delay trails sounding all clean. I want them to be like, scratched up and you know fucked up sounding and the same goes with um you know all the other sort of like um you know phasing sweeping shimmery effects and um so i i don't know if it sacrifices clarity but it certainly boosts the intensity and uh i don't know that's sort of why we started doing it that way i don't know if adam necessarily runs his gear like that but um you know we've kind of sort of settled on a, a single overdrive that we like to use. And there's something about the uniform sort of arc of distortion. Is this from a secret? The is this a secret? Is this a secret? You don't have to tell, tell it. We can't, we have to divulge all the secrets. All right. But this overdrive. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a boss OS two. It's an overdrive okay. distortion. <laughs> yeah, you've been you using that anywhere. <laughs> so you've been using that forever. A long time. So actually uh, Kurt from converge, was responsible for turning us onto that tone because in his words, he's like, look, you want the Slayer, South of Heaven, Rain and Blood tone, <laughs> just take an OS2 and run it through a Marshall and yeah. you're Does good to Does it have go. to be 800 or a 900 though? Well, I played, I played both back in the day. Um, I think I got some of my better tones out of an 800. Yeah. They're a little squishier, um, just a little bit headier, more cerebral. But uh, the 900 is definitely a, a workhorse. And, and yeah, I had both models and played them on various Caven recordings back in the day. See, that's why, that's why people got to tune into the show, because we divulge the secrets. I'm telling you, I, I, anytime I have a you know, guitar player I'm a fan of, I always try and get all those, those, those little nuggets. Um, Hell yeah. Well, no, but it's, it's inter interesting even me thinking about that, because I was listening to the new album, which is kind of... Is it, it's like semi-released, right? Like you guys are kind of putting out in like pieces and like EPs. 
So we've done that... four, yeah, we've done four singles for the record, and the album in full comes out on May 20th. Okay, it's called Heavy Pendulum, and it's a beast. But the one thing I noticed, because the first song, New Reality, comes in, it's just got like a fucking heavy riff, but it has, but it's that same kind of tone, which is why I was wondering why I was, if it's the same pedal, but, you know, tuned down lower, but it just sounds mean. And now I'm probably going to steal some of this stuff. Next time you see me, I'm going to have the O2 and the 800. You're like, thanks, Doc. Get your own shit, Doc. <laughs> hey, man, I've been stealing since day one. So it's only fair. You know, um, there's a there's a great band from the 90s called the Van Pelt. And they made a record called Stealing from Our Favorite Thieves. <laughs> that's great. That's a, that's that's a wonderful phraseology. I like that. Mm hmm. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and this is, and I read about this, some interview you did about you were a busker, right? You were play on the streets, singing. I I did that on and off uh, while I was living in Boston. This is before I moved to New York. And uh, I did it on and off just for like um, maybe two brief periods of time. What was and, uh, what was the impetus but but behind doing that? Because I, I would imagine this is the most uh artistically pure version, unless you were like cleaning up. Like for all I know, you were making like, you know, eight grand a day because you were just <laughs> crushing it on the street corner. I gotta say, the very first day I did it, I made close to two hundred dollars in like two hours. And I remember telling somebody who had busked in the city before several times. And they were like, damn, that is really fucking good. So I was yeah. like, all right, that's that's not bad. I mean, look, you're on the front lines. You know, there's no separation between, you know, you and whoever's waiting for the train or the bus. And there's something fucking weird about it, for sure, because you certainly feel like you might be invading people's spaces and some people make it known more than uh, is comfortable. But these are just the realities of doing the shit that you, you deal with. And also like hanging out in the Park Street train station for several hours is not healthy. I mean, there's no natural light down there. Uh, it's it, it's meant for transit. It's not meant for people to be hanging out. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember talking to Mary Lou Lord about this. Um, she's someone who busked very frequently for years and um she thinks that some issues that she was having with her voice at the time may have been as a result train exhaust train exhaust yeah i mean so i i did it as long as i could i thought it was an interesting exercise um if you want to practice and get bold that is a way to do it i mean i always think back to um the Marley documentary um, where it talks about um, the Marley brothers and um, Lee Scratch Perry taking those guys to a cemetery in Jamaica in the middle of the night to practice. And so his whole idea was like, look, if you guys can fucking like sing in perfect harmony and get through a song and, you know, it's, you know, pitch black and you're fucking, you know, between graves, <laughs> uh, you, you're, you can build yourself to essentially be as close to fearless as possible. And I think there's probably an element of that 
that I was searching for, um, putting myself in the uh, situation of busking publicly in the city of Boston, especially like blue collar as fuck. And uh, when people are feeling salty, they'll let you know. Yeah, well, that kind of reminds me because I, I remember re- reading the, the the Marley book, and I, I remember that specifically about them working on the harmonies and all that, just kind of being in the uh, the grittiness of it all. But it kind of reminds me of the Beatles too in in Hamburg, right? You know, on speed, playing ten hours a day, and you know, I imagine that those those Hamburg uh, nightclubs were filled up with as much cigarette smoke as the uh, <laughs> as the train exhaust as well. It's true. It's true. I mean, look, you know, the the Europeans and their cigarettes, it's it's real. It is real. I mean, I uh, I remember when Caven started to transition from playing like exclusively VFW halls and Knights of Columbus's and um, just because we had the opportunity to, you know, actually play like a quote unquote proper venue in the city. I hated it. I was like, I don't know why people like this. You know, you come home smelling like fucking cigarettes. Your clothes are just destroyed. Uh, it feels like you came down with a cold. And like, I, I, you know, some of Caven's early shows at Brownies in New York City. I mean, it was like, <laughs> literally, you if, if you were at the door entering the club, you couldn't see the stage. And it's not like a big place. But there would be a fucking cloud of cigarette smoke that was just impenetrable to the eye. And I'm like, I, hacking my way through singing at these shows. I, I do not miss cigarettes at shows. Uh, long story short. Nor do I. The first show I ever played, I was 16 years old at the Court Tavern in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I'm not sure if you guys ever played there. But I got, no. I got it was my first time I was ever in a smoky bar and I got bronchitis. Oh, but that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to yeah. earn got to earn your stripes. Um, no, I always found that really fascinating. Like I said, you're there's a purism to uh, your approach. And I don't know if, you know, maybe you can kind of fill in the gaps. I guess I kind of perceived that either Caven was at some point either broken up or dormant. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure t- totally what the case was that and. Then you started doing Mutoid Man, which kind of cemented that. Was that the case? Was Caven kind of on the back burner for a while or not really an active band? Well, I got to a point where I needed to move out of Massachusetts for a number of reasons. Um, nothing sketchy. It was like, actually, I, you know, it was for a relationship. And uh, I also felt like for personal growth, it would be a big thing for me to explore, just living in a place that, um, you know, wasn't what I was accustomed to. And, you know, just kind of hit the reset button in my personal life. And um, so I remember having a conversation with Caleb about this because, um, you know, he had just moved back from having lived in Los Angeles for four years. And uh, I was picking his brain about that experience. And, you know, he just uh, really encouraged me to go for it. And, you know, in this conversation, I was, you know, basically trying to say, I'll come back to do cave and rehearsals and get together for stuff as much as I can. And he was like, listen, you know, that's great, but really don't sweat it. Like you should let yourself, you know, become immersed 
in sort of a new life and make a new life for yourself and, and really like let it, let it sink in. And, uh, it was good advice. And so I think as a result, um, it just became trickier to do cave-in just logistically. Um, but we were still like very much in each other's lives. Um, but instead of like getting together for band practice, we'd go on a camping trip somewhere or, uh, you know, it'd be like a, a birthday party for one of their kids. And, um, so socially we were still very connected. Um, Caleb, Adam and JR also did a version of Caleb's project Zozobra yep. for a period of time. And uh, so that kind of kept those guys together and kept some, you know, grease in the gears. And I, I think just sort of following Caleb's lead in a way, like me sort of letting myself just sink into a New York way of life, um, you know, I, I shared um, a practice space with Ben Kohler. Uh, you know, at, at, at some point I realized, wow, I've been living in New York now for almost a year and my full stack is just sitting in my closet. I got to get that thing out of there. And Ben was like, bring it down to my rehearsal space. And, you know, so it essentially moved from one closet to another because <laughs> his shit was tiny. Um, but we just started riffing together and getting together, you know, once a week or something. And, and just banging out all this cool shit. And at the time, I thought it was just going to be a recording project, something cool that I was doing with one of my friends. And Ben encouraged me to, you know, he's, he was like, hey, let's make this a band. Let's fucking find some people to play with and, and you know, bring this shit. And I'm so glad that he did. And it really helped sort of create a new life for me as a writer and an artist, um, it kind of, it reawakened something that I felt like was dormant for a little while. Um, and I've talked about this a little bit recently, just doing press for the new record and sort of reflecting back on the whole timeline of Caven and, um, you know, going back to the antenna record, we were writing and rewriting stuff and, it, it was such a long process making that record that um, I was burnt out. Um, I think at the time that, um, you know, Caven was making the White Silence record, which is one of my favorite Caven records. And this was a time when like Adam and Caleb especially like really came into their own as writers. And um, I was able to step back and just sort of help produce the record and dress it up sonically and kind of keep things moving and just be involved with all things logistically in terms of the recording. Um, so it might not be the best sounding cave in record, but it's got a cool ass vibe. And, um, again, it's got some of my favorite songs in there. I mean, sing my loves is probably the greatest cave in song ever written, you know, and that's a Caleb number right there. And, um, so what I was also feeling though, was this, wow, I, 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 I wrote maybe one or two songs for this record. What's, what's happening? Am I slipping? Like, <laughs> you know, is, is it over? Like my, I felt like my connection to heavy music through my hands, like what I was able to write on a guitar and maybe even my mouth too, like what I was able to vocalize and sing and what I just naturally felt propelled to do. It didn't land in that arena. I just didn't have it. And so it was looking back, uh, a, uh, it was a bout of writer's block. Mm. And um, yeah, 
It's uh, interesting to reflect back on now and to see it that way. But Mutoid Man reawakened all that for me. And, um, you know, I really have Ben to thank for that. Well, listening to it, I, and I remember hearing about it, but then there was like a, a, a real buzz where like people who I wouldn't even think of were like, yo, you heard this Mutoid Man record? Like it was, it was almost, and it kind of piqued this idea, which, you know, kind of, I can even relate to with my other band, Bad Wolves, like having like a, a second life in in music where i think sometimes we're so wrapped up in our original band and that's our identity and that's kind of everything we kind of see through that prism that no you can do new things and sometimes the new thing will become more successful than the old thing and even much faster than you even anticipate especially when it's so different and to me it's it's so different like i listen to it it's like almost (laughs) i I don't know. Maybe you've you've heard different uh, descriptions, but it's like it's like Motorhead with Iron Maiden, but with you singing on it with like down tune weird guitars. But it's just super, I love that. but super energetic. But has this like epic kind of thing happening. But to me, I hear it. And it's like you know, it sounds like someone who's kind of discovering especially from the, the guitar standpoint the idea like metal guitar at its heart is just fun right like you're always when you're playing a metal riff you always feel like you're 16 years old right like there's it brings that kind of element of fun and excitement and it's that's what right here mutoid man it just sounds like man if i could just make any band that i wanted to when i was 16 years old listening to all the fun, exciting, energetic metal stuff. Um, that's what it kind of, it you know, that's what it elicits. And I think that's the reason why it, it seemed to kind of glom on. Like people just like, uh, you could feel that energy in it. And, and so it, it, it seemed to do really well. You know, that's my perception. That's great. Yeah, it's a super fun band. Um, you know, that is a massive product of just Ben's, personality as a musician as well i mean you know that dude's drumming sounds like if you took a grenade and threw it into a fucking firecracker store yeah you know what i mean and uh sort of write music soundtracking that fucking sparkly you know wild fiery apocalypse of tones and and rhythm and energy is just super fun and um yeah it's like it sounds like it's just gonna take off at any minute like i'm basically hanging on for dear life trying to keep up with that dude i mean he's one of the most incredible musicians out there um in so many ways and you know behind the scenes he's also a huge influence on the way that the music is written as far as arrangements go trimming the fat um as we go along and put pieces together um lyrically um as far as uh vocal lines and melodies so it's it's really great and to be able to like let myself go and just to sort of let him guide things and to sort of shape things to his vision is a huge sound of that band and um nick caggio as well i mean meeting nick um he's 10 years younger than us um so being a native new yorker was kind of interesting playing with a musician 
with that sort of background and that idea and just all his experience mixing bands when he was working as the house Saint, engineer. St. Vitus, Saint right? Vitus. Yeah, yeah, St. Vitus. And, um, you know, just making a new friend in New York who's a fucking bona fide shredder on the bass. Um, and he's got this weird picking style where everything is starts with an upstroke. And I'm, so I'm just like, wow, this is this is a real trip to, you know, just watching his hands as we're like exchanging riffs and song ideas. Um, and then more recently getting to play with Jeff Matz in the band and writing with Jeff, who's just such a force and he's so disciplined with his regimen and his warmups and his devotion to learning music and to absorbing it. And, um, yeah, it's, he's, he's a little bit older too. So he's got influences that are things that, um, it might have just escaped my radar if if he wasn't like sitting me down and going like you know check this out or check out this fucking far out thing from the 70s that you know it it's great it's it's a really um fun unique just explosively creative band and um yeah it's um it's 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 exciting we're going to make a new record um well actually Sorry, we have a new record, but we're going to release it next year, and it's it's all done. I'm I'm really stoked on it, and um, you know we just got to carve out some time to like make sure our 400 other bands aren't doing shit so that we can support it properly. Well, you're I mean it's insane how how prolific you are that you, you know your your output it's it's when you look at it all kind of zoomed out it's I don't, I don't know where you find the time but it's it's very impressive. Um, what, so speaking of your 8,000 bands you're in, before I let you go, I got to talk about the quicksand thing because that is just, that's extremely cool. I mean, having Sergio yeah. come back and you there, it's like, you know, quicksand, it's like super group status now. All right. This is, it's too much talent for one band. I mean, what, how did that come about? And I mean, how do you, what's, what, how was your experience just playing with them? Oh, man. Well, I've loved Quicksand since I was a young, towny alternative rocker. I mean, this is before I discovered hardcore and punk. I didn't know anything about New York, New York hardcore. It's just that the slip record, when I heard it in a record store one day, it was checking all the boxes for me of shit that I loved at that age, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, Quicksand has been a massive influence on me as a player and a musician and 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 Caven and, you know, just hours of air guitaring and air drumming to that band. <laughs> um, so, you know, when I moved to New York, I mean, I, I would see mostly Walter around um, and just super warm, friendly, awesome dude. And clearly we have a lot of the same interests in music and, you know, we're into supporting the live arts and, you know, supporting the scene and all that stuff. And, and so I think, um, I think there was that. And then also, um, my friend, Mike, my good friend, Mike, I did a project with him called new idea society. And, and there's been many different formations of that band, but one in particular was with, um, Mike and Alan cage, from quicksand playing drums. And so at some point we all got together to write some new music and it, it was the last thing that new idea society did. And I think it came out like three years ago and it was just a couple songs that we wrote together and re re 
recorded with a killer lineup. So it's Alan playing drums, uh, me and Mike. And then we have Brian Cook from Russian Circles and Sumac and Botch playing bass. And Sergeant House put the record out. Well, it's just a two-song single, so it's just a digital release. But um, yeah, super proud of that. And so that was my first experience really hanging out with Alan. And um, I, I think Quicksand at some point after having established themselves as a three-piece band um, and sort of getting their footing after, you know, becoming that version of the band, uh, they, they realized that, um, I think Walter realized that um, as far as like the amount of bandwidth that goes into just doing his part in the band, trying to cover what Tom Capone was bringing to the table was just, it was it was too taxing, you yeah. know, uh, for him, and he wanted some relief, and um, so we had a conversation about it, and you know, it's it's been great. Like I love what Tom brought to that band, and I just I don't feel the need to really expand upon it, which is fun. I just try to get into that zone and play it as best as I can, especially like the solo and Super Genius, which is like. The, it's like King Crimson fucking hardcore moshy 90 shit. Like, where did that come from? So cool. Um, and uh, it's just nice to feel like a band that I've loved for so long has a little bit more of a kick in the ass thanks to whatever part I can play and helping them just be the best band that they can be, really. And um, so, yeah, I mean, as much as my schedule can allow and as much as they're able to do i mean i'd love to try to make it work i mean i also understand if they get some kick-ass you know player that can just jump in full time and fucking do it like really lay into it i would love that too i mean i just love that band it doesn't matter me involved or not like you know i just i just love that quicksand is still a functioning thing in our lives yeah i i saw it was some kind of live studio or rehearsal kind of thing you guys put up it sounded unbelievable i was like jesus christ these guys sound good i was i was very jealous but very happy to have that <laughs> and you guys played at the troubadour and i didn't know about it and i, I found it like the night of and i couldn't and i couldn't go but i saw some cell phone footage and it looked like people were like losing their minds so i'm sure that was a lot of fun yeah the troubadour <laughs> shows especially were great um you know lots of stuff to jump on and fucking you know play leads and you know act like an asshole well, well it's you know. nice for you you get you get to like we well, don't have to sing you you know you get to like have you know a little more room to kind of you know feel yourself as a guitar player it must be nice it's very very true um yeah being able to step away from the mic and just like essentially be like a cheerleader be like the flavor flave of, of quicksand <laughs> is, is really nice the hype man yeah, yeah. Also, just changing up my scene, too. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to be in this community of, like, Massachusetts, Boston, sort of bass musicians and, and artists. But um, just stepping out of that and doing something with what I feel like in a lot of ways is, like, the kindred spirit to the world of New York hardcore as far as, like, sure. how those guys have done shit that has challenged people's minds and their ears and you know with Sergio branching out and playing with the Deftones for years and you know Walter's um projects with like rival schools and of course you know 
their collective history with all the bands that were seminal to New York hardcore that they've that they've played in and all the shit that they've seen over the years and and they're still doing stuff that's great and relevant like the new Quicksand record sounds awesome the songs are inspired um the artwork looks amazing and they're just in a really great place and they've figured out a way to sustain themselves as artists and to to continue being relevant and um you know it's it's not the easiest thing to do but they, they've uh they've channeled that and you know that's what we're all trying to do <laughs> absolutely absolutely well by the way the the brain fart i had the guitar player that is really great with effects that doesn't get enough credit adam jones from tool by the way little little callback so <laughs> great call great you know, call awesome yeah so very very influential but I, I i remember that so i had to just slip that in there but uh steve i actually have to run but this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really appreciate you allowing me to take some time just to pick your brain and kind of, I have all these, you know, things uh, in my mind because I've, I've, I'm such a massive fan. Everything you do uh, is, is something I always want to check out. And you're an inspiration, uh, I don't think just to me, but uh, to a lot of people because, like I said, there's this element of you just doing it the right way you know, and, and, and being like a, a true artist, um, and someone who is, is doing everything for the right reasons. And, that, and for me, that's very, uh, you know, that's something I want to do in life and especially as a, as a musician and an artist. So it's just, it's a pleasure and I appreciate your talent and, and, and everything. And, and everyone needs to check out this new Caven album because it's a, it's a beast. It's an absolute beast of a record. And I, and I think you guys should be really proud of it. Oh, Doc, thank you so much. Uh, you're such a gracious host. And it's cool that we have all these things that we share about the world that we came from. And we can connect over that. And we're very fortunate to have this foundation in our lives. And I Absolutely. think as long as there's a way to express our love for it and to be creative within it, then um, some good shit will happen. Thank you so very much. You take care of yourself. And I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. All right, Doc. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.
So you just heard New Reality, the opening track from Kaven's brand new record, record, Heavy Pendulum, which just came out this past week. And they had a nice little uh, first week sales number. So congrats to Steven and everyone in that band. Uh, the record is really really great as you can tell that that first track is a it's a slammer and it's it's one of those things i i like about bands that go through these really advanced uh changes and evolutions through their history and then they kind of refine themselves uh where they rediscover their roots but then they bring in they don't they don't lose the elements that uh was part of their evolution it's kind of very similar to metallica in my mind where they you know the load stuff still kind of exists in there and some of that energy from saint anger still kind of exists in there but they're bringing in the classic uh elements as well so that conversation was a lot of fun and uh, i just thank steven uh so much and a uh, stephanie uh who does uh pr for him who actually used to work for I don't know if it was still Sound Talent or Jabberjaw, but uh, she's awesome. So thank you, Stephanie, for uh, setting all that up. And and yeah, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Steven is a legend. And like I said, far, far too humble. All right. He he definitely doesn't need to be. Start being, start, start throwing your weight around, Steven. All right. Let motherfuckers know that you ain't fucking around. But, uh, but yeah, so it's late here on Wednesday night. And yeah, I'm just... I got to go actually this week. We're starting writing sessions for the new Bad Wolves album, which is very exciting. And I haven't really written much lately. I've been so busy, uh, which is frustrating. And, you know, because I more and more I need to kind of clear space and, you know, doing all these projects, which are like live playing projects like the wedding band, where it's not really about creating uh, from that perspective. And then I, with the God Forbid reunion coming up, that's about, you know, kind of performing in the in, in live arena. So I need to put that other hat on. And and I, and I wonder, you know, with, with the with the podcast, maybe if I'm knee, knee deep in it, maybe I might need to go on another hiatus. We'll see. And I, and I don't I don't want to scare you guys, but I want to manage expectations because with this next album, I really I think it gets harder and harder as you get older to just literally just lose yourself in the process where nothing else matters because as you get older you get more responsibilities and you're more in tune with you know maybe a relationship or family or just work right and whereas if you're 25 years old you got nothing else going on you can just hey i'm making this record and nothing else exists and i think you kind of need to do that a little bit to touch some greatness it has to be uh a full commitment so we shall see i think some some magical things are going to happen. I'm very excited about it. And uh, obviously it's not going to happen right away. We're going to, it'll probably be, you know, through the year and next year, even I'm sure we'll be, we'll be working on this record, but it's going to be exciting. And I'm going to look at getting Max on the podcast to tell his story and introduce him to my listeners and, and to the Bad Wolves fans and, and all of that, because uh, he's a really really deep guy uh who thinks <laughs> about things in in a way uh he's very conscientious and uh and that's something we connect on kind of like trying to navigate our way through this music business thing and and kind of maintain some of our humanity within that so 
I I can't wait to get Max on. Hopefully he'll do it. I think he'll do it. He, we talked about it before, but now is exactly, precisely the right time. So I'm going to run. I hope to see all of you on the road uh, coming up, but I got some time at home, but I'm going to try and get some shit done. All right. I got to run. NBA Finals start today. Golden State Celtics, who you got? I'm picking, I'm picking, I'm picking Golden State. All right. Home court advantage, championship pedigree, three equals more than two. That's what I'm going with. And I got the defense. I mean, Celtics got the defense too, but I don't know. So I'm going. All right. I got to run. Love you guys. Mom out. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.